All right. Uh, if you guys ever, I don't know if you've ever watched those videos where they, they take a, a perfectly good watermelon and they, they begin to put rubber bands on the watermelon, uh, one after another, one after another, until the, it, it, the watermelon actually bursts. It's kind of, kind of fun to watch. I don't know why you would do that. I'm, I'm a kind of a neat freak, so I, I, I wouldn't want to do that. But, but as we go through the Gospel of Matthew, you, you begin to see the tension between the religious leaders and Jesus kind of start to build. It just kind of ratchets and ratchets and ratchets as they get more frustrated with them and more frustrated with them until eventually it gets so great that they end up nailing Jesus to a cross. In chapter 9, we see several examples of, of, of you know, more rubber bands being, being added as Jesus claims to be God. Then he makes friends with a tax collector and recruits him to his team. And then he goes over to his house and enjoys a meal with him and his buddies. And so you can just see the tension, you know, of the Pharisees, uh, you know, because they're offended by this. These kinds of um, activities offend these devout religious people who are watching it unfold for a couple of reasons. Uh, The first one is that devout religious people don't eat with sinners. Everybody knows that, right? Can I get an amen? I'm just kidding. That's not, don't, don't do it. And then number two, really devout religious people apparently don't even eat at all. They fast. That's the way, that's the way you do it. So, so this is where we left off last week with Jesus enjoying fellowship at the house of his new disciple, Matthew, the tax collector, along with several of his tax collecting buddies at the same event. And, and, and the Pharisees very offended and upset by the whole thing. Now, Jesus has just fended off the first round of attacks um, by, by the, you know, by quoting Hosea 6, 6, where he tells the Pharisees that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. And then he goes on to, to explain further that he actually came for the Matthews of the world. That, that's, that's who he came for. I came for sinners, not for the righteous. And again, you can, that's like 10 rubber bands at once for these guys. They're going, you, they've got to be frustrated. This morning, we're going to look at the second round of attacker, attackers coming in. It's like the old WWE thing where the one team would go and tag the next team, and then they'd come in. So we have fresh recruits coming in now. Um, Matthew only mentions John the Baptist disciples coming, but if you read Mark and Luke's account, that you, can, you know that the Pharisees were there to kind of pile on as well. So, so here we go in Matthew chapter 9. Starting in verse 14, it says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wine skins, and so both are preserved. So they see Jesus and his disciples eating, and they ask the question, why aren't you guys fasting like the rest of us? And interestingly, the only prescribed day for fasting in, in the Old Testament was the Day of Atonement. That was the one day when, when fasting was prescribed. But just like other areas of the law... They added to it. They added extra layers, extra, you know, uh, requirements. And so a really pious Jew, if you were really religious, really good, you would fast twice a week, every Monday and Thursday. Now, for those keeping it score at home, that's 104 times a year that you would fast. That's pretty, pretty impressive. It's possible that Matthew's dinner event actually occurred on one of these days, which is what prompts their question. 
But what they're really saying in all of this is, is, is more or less this. Notice they don't, they don't accuse Jesus. They just say you're followers. But what they're saying is this. Devout followers of God, good people, fast. You're not fasting. Therefore, you're not good people. You're not devoted. You're not pleasing to God. That's what they're saying here. And th- this, is the, th- this, wrong, uh, this kind of wrong thinking is what lies at the heart of all works-based religion. If you want God to like you, basically, you say, here, follow this list. Don't do these things. Make sure you do these. Then then God will like you. That's the idea behind this. Now, Judaism is a works-based religion. Christianity is a grace-based religion. And and I think um, Keller, Tim Keller, gives a really helpful distinction between these things by saying this. Religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. Christianity says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. And and there's a big difference between those two. Works are important in both of them. Notice that. But one gains your salvation, and the other is proof of your salvation. That's the difference. One is something you accomplish, and the other is something God accomplishes that results in good works showing up in your life. Fruit, right? Okay, so let's talk about fasting for a minute. (laughs) What is it? What's the purpose of it? And why do we do it? Um, I'm not a big faster. I'll just go on record from the start here that not something I specialize in or excel at. Um, but like everything else, there's a good side and a bad side to fasting. Of course, the bad side is you don't get to eat. That's the, that's the worst part of it. Now, that for, for, for the Jews then and for many people today, fasting is used, to way, used as a way to draw attention to yourself um, so that people will, will see how religious you are, how pious you are, how, how awesome you are. And if you remember how Jesus got out to the religious leaders, um, he told them not to, not to use it as a way to draw attention to yourself when he said, you know, when you give, when you pray, and when you're fast, do not be like the hypocrites who only do it to be seen by others. So these guys were taking good things, turning them into bad things, and, and as ways to get attention from others, to be, you know, to impress others. But even worse than that is a way to kind of get God's arm behind his back. Um, you know, we kind of do this thing where, where we say, okay, look, I'm excelling in these things. I'm, I'm praying, I'm fasting, I'm giving, I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to do. Now you need to act and, and bless me and do the things you're supposed to do. It's like, I've held up my end of the bargain. Now you need to do your end of the thing. Now that, that would be fasting done wrong if you have that mindset. But there are right ways to fast. Uh, Jesus said to do it privately. That's the first one, right? Which it already tells us what they were doing at this dinner was wrong. Because if, if, if you're asking people, hey, are, you know, why aren't you fasting or are you fasting? You're not doing it privately at that point. You're not supposed to know who's doing it. That's the way it works. It's like the, and Jesus even said, you know, when you're fasting, you know, put a little slick in your hair. Don't walk around with a, with a, you know, like looking all sad and, you know, what's wrong with you? Oh, I'm fasting. You know, that's not how you're supposed to do it. <laughs> But how are, people aren't going to know if you don't do it that way. You know, you understand the deal. It would be like if somebody, you know, walked up to you on Sunday and said, hey, how much did you put in the offering box today? I mean, you don't ask that question, do you? And if somebody said, you know, I, you know, I put in this much, it's like, oh, well, I put in twice that much. This is kind of what's going on. Fasting is a good thing when the point of doing it is to turn away from earthly and, and you know, earthly things, relying on physical things, relying on earthly things, and instead 
when you're, when you're basically relying on God and that's your focus. That's a good thing then. So sometimes people will fast when they're seeking God's will or direction in life. They'll, they'll pray and they'll fast and they'll try to understand uh, which way God is leading. Sometimes they do it to draw close to God in a, in a time of distress or mourning or even in a time of repentance when, when you've, you, know, you just know you've blown it and you really want to, you know, you can't eat. You know when you're, when you're so sad or you're feeling so much loss that you don't even have an appetite? Sometimes that's just the natural response to something like that. Um, during, um, during times like that, it, it's, it's a way for us to fully rely on God and say, you're all that I need. It's a beautiful act of worship at that point, right? The bottom line is this though, fasting is primarily a way for us to turn our attention towards God and not so much as a way to get him to turn his attention toward us. Although that's often why we use it. And that's why a lot of people, you know, I want to get something from God. So I'll do this. Um, if we try to turn fasting into a religious routine to force God's blessings, we've missed the point, right? So Jesus is going to answer their question as to why he and, he and his disciples are not fasting by giving three illustrations. And I like it when the illustrations are given for you because if you put sermons together, the hardest part is coming up with good illustrations and they're really important. And Jesus was great at using word pictures to teach people. People say they remember that kind of stuff better. Uh, when he provides them for us, it's, it's perfect. That's exactly what I need when I'm putting together a sermon. So the first illustration is a wedding party. The second one is a new patch sewn onto an old garment. And the third is new wine being poured into old wineskins. So we look at the first one in verse 15, where Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away and then they will fast. So in this illustration, Jesus is the bridegroom and the disciples are the wedding guests. Now, keep in mind, Jewish weddings weren't like our weddings. They, they weren't, you go for a couple hours and then you're out. They went on for about seven days. It was a week-long event with lots of food, lots of, of drink, lots of celebration. And this illustration should have actually hit home with John, John the Baptist's disciples because he used a similar illustration to let them know who Jesus was earlier. I don't know if you remember the story, but you know John was baptizing, then he baptized Jesus, and then Jesus started baptizing people. And John's disciples all went, well, wait a second. He's out baptizing you right now. Look at all the people that are going to him. What's going on here? And this is where John the Baptist said, I, I need to decrease and he needs to increase. Remember all that? And, and at that point, John identified Jesus as the bridegroom. And, and he's basically saying, look, he's, he's the groom. <laughs> he's the guy that gets the bride, not me. I'm the friend of the groom. I'm the guy that rejoices over what's going on, but I don't get the bride. So he explains all. So this is a, you know, pretty they should have got this. So referring to Jesus as the bridegroom would have meant something to John the Baptist's disciples, or should have. It also would have meant something to the Pharisees, but they wouldn't have been filled with joy over it. They would have been, this would have been another rubber band going on the watermelon. They would have been upset by it. Because in the Old Testament, the idea of God being the husband or the bridegroom is a very familiar, that's, that's familiar language. They would have known what this meant and what Jesus was saying. And Israel was often referred to as the bride or the, the, you know, the wife. So again, there's no way they would have missed what Jesus was saying here. They would have been very upset by it because once again, Jesus, through saying this and using this illustration, is claiming to be God. By using the illustration of the wedding feast, he's telling them something very important. He's saying the groom has entered the building. This thing that you guys have been waiting for, hoping for, longing for, fasting for even, has happened. It's here now. This is Emmanuel, God with us. So 
you can almost see Jesus and his disciples saying, and you, and you want us to fast right now? You, you know, we're, we're eating dinner with the King of Kings. The Messiah is here, and you, and you think it'd be a good idea for us to fast? This is not a time for fasting. It's a time for feasting. It's a time for celebration, not sadness. Now, it's, it's easy to see why the Pharisees would have gotten fired up and upset about this, because they seem to get upset about everything, right? They, they, were, they were really good at that. But, but notice how they sucked John the Baptist's disciples into the same mindset, into being upset by what was going on. They should have been pro-Jesus. You know, the Pharisees weren't, but these guys should have been. They should have understood who he was, and, and they should have joined in on the feast, but they were more passionate about sacrifice. They were more passionate about kind of being those religious rule keepers than they were anything else. See, it reminds me of Martha and Mary, you know, the story of Jesus going to their home, and Martha is just, she's busy, she's serving, she's doing the important stuff, and it was important stuff, but her sister was just spending time with Jesus, and Jesus said, she's chosen the better thing, she's chosen the better part, and that's exactly what's going on here. These guys should have been enjoying Jesus, and instead they're focused on the wrong thing, and you know, why is this? Why is it so easy to get pulled into this negative way of thinking, because I see it happening. It happens to me, and I see it happening to a lot of other Christians today. I I think there are two big misconceptions when it comes to our relationship with God. The first one is people think that life with God equals this, forcing yourself to do all the things that you hate and avoiding all the things that you like. We do that. I hate that, so I guess I have to do that. Oh, I love that, so I guess I have to give that up. We think that way. And this leads to the second big misunderstanding or misconception, that life with God is a solemn, gloomy, joyless affair where, you know, no smiles, no happiness, no laughing. If you see something going down that looks like somebody's having fun, you need to go over and shut that down. You know, there's feasting going on. There should be fasting. This is that, you know, you need to be miserable, just like the rest of us. That's what we, we, we tend to be like. And it's this idea of a glass half empty kind of existence. And I relate to that. There was actually a mug that was being sold for a while that had a line on the glass and it said right underneath it, the glass is officially half empty and I wanted it. I thought that'd be kind of neat. But, but this is no way for Christians to be. This is, a, this is not a good look for Christians to always walk around with this idea that, that the glass is half empty. And, and I watched, a, to illustrate this, I watched this YouTube video. I'm not going to name the names of the two pastors, but two very well-known pastors that were being interviewed and, and about a lot of different things. But one of the questions the interviewer asked them was basically, how do we prepare as Christians for what's coming in our country right now? The possibility of persecution, the changes we're seeing, you know, how do we navigate this? The first pastor, who I would say is a glass half empty kind of guy, um, he painted an extremely bleak picture of doom and gloom. Paganism 2.0, he called it. This is, you know, he described the, the country accurately. I, I didn't, I couldn't find fault with him. What he said was true. And I found myself just getting mad. The more he talked, the more mad I got. The more he talked, the more, you know, yeah, you know, let's get him. I mean, I was like this kind of thing. I was getting frustrated. But I, I, when he got done, I had no hope. I had no peace. I was just frustrated. But he was right. And then the next guy answered. And this guy, I wouldn't even say his glass was half full. It was just brimming over. It was just like, wow. And he said, well, he kind of rebuked him. It was, it was kind of awesome, actually, because this is one of those guys you don't rebuke very often, and he got rebuked. But, it, but his point was, God is sovereign. He's in control. His, 
His purpose and his plans are being fulfilled. Remember the end of the story, how that works out? We don't have, a, we don't have to go and just be miserable right now. We have every reason to be filled with confidence and peace and purpose and hope and all of these things. He got done and I was worshiping God. I was praising him. I couldn't believe the difference in what I said. Both things they said were true. We need more people like that in the church and in our lives that are going to remind us and orient us toward that kind of truth and reality. Christians ought to be the happiest people on the planet. And so many of us look like we're just sucking on lemons all day and we're frustrated with everything that's going on. It's like, ah, you're miserable. No, we should be zippity doodah on our, you know, our way through the day. That's, that's what we should be like. Our sins are forgiven. We have been set free. We are loved by God. We are his friend, not his enemy. And he has promised us a seat at his table to dine with him for eternity. I mean, is that not the best news going? Should you be walking around with a stupid smile on your face all day long? Yes. You know, I would argue the reason that we have such a hard time with this is because we don't understand grace. In our minds, we we know we have to earn. We have to do. We have to you know, we, we have to basically add something to all of this. And, and not only that, but we think that other people do too. Like, you know, if you want to be saved, you got to do all these things. We're, we're putting that on ourselves. We're putting on other people. You got to earn. And this is why Jesus said in the previous section that he desires mercy over sacrifice, because sacrifice makes sense to us. That's what, that's what kind of computes with me. And this causes us to focus on the wrong things. Sacrifice becomes like the bullseye, the target for us to hit. Not as an act of worship, you know, not, not that, not, not like that, but as a way to rise above, to earn. And so we can become marksmen in these two areas of comparative holiness and competitive holiness. If you're not familiar with those, comparative holiness is what we use what, what we do as the standard for, for what everybody else should be doing. And then we had this like holiness scale that we kind of rate everybody on. So I, you know, okay, I'm here, obviously. And then <laughs> the rest of you guys are, you know, it's that, it's that type of thing. The goal isn't really to, to, to be holy or to spur others on to holiness. It's really just to make yourself feel okay about the way you are. So we measure ourselves against others. And then we climb up on our high horse and kind of look down at others and, you know, you're not, you're not doing it right. You shouldn't be doing those things. You shouldn't be saying those things. You certainly shouldn't be listening to those things. You watch those things. I mean, we do that kind of stuff. So we're constantly comparing ourselves to others. And this leads to competitive holiness, which is where we, we strive to be better than everyone else. So fasting more, praying more, giving more, making sure that everybody knows about it too, because it doesn't count if they don't know about it. So you got to make sure that everybody knows. But this is where you say things like, oh, you eat with sinners? I don't eat with sinners. Oh, you're, I fast. You're not fasting? This is what, what goes on. And the goal is really to get people to marvel at how awesome we are and, and maybe to get God to like us a little bit more, right? We're like the kid who tries to win his parents' approval by accomplishing more, getting more trophies. Then maybe mom and dad will love me. You know what? God, if you're his child, you're in. He loves you based on what Jesus has done, not based on what you've done. But for me, it's like, I, don't, I love when my kids accomplish things, but that's not why I love them. You see that? And God, if you're a child, if you've been adopted into his family, he loves you. He set his love upon you. You're in. And this is one of the biggest problems with the idea of being religious. It gives us a false sense of holiness, and at the same time, it fails to make us holy. 
You know, you can't, you can't make yourself holy. No matter how much you do, no matter how much you try, you can't make yourself holy. Only Jesus can make you holy. And so this is what we're seeing with John's disciples and the Pharisees. They're so focused on what others are doing that they're completely missing out on the joy of Jesus. <laughs> do you see that? It's, it, they're so busy being offended by everything that's going on is they're, they're missing out on the best part. Christ is here. I have him and he has me. That's the best part. So this is, for example, you see somebody gets healed and they're like, what day was that on? Was that on the Sabbath? Oh, somebody got healed. You know, you see a tax collector come to faith in Christ. He's saved. A soul gets saved. And they're over there going, they're pouting because of it. As a Christian, are you more focused on the negative? Are you just always offended by the behavior of everything and everybody around you? Do you have a critical spirit? Do you spend your time always looking at others, finding fault, seeing what they're doing wrong, identifying sin in others? It's like, a, you know, I picture the self-appointed hall monitor that just kind of roams the halls of the world looking for offenses, looking for violations, and trying to hand out, you know, I don't know what. This is really something that's easy for us to do as Christians, far too easy. And I, I used to specialize in this. I still struggle with it, but I'm disgusted by it now when I see it in myself. I don't want to be that kind of person. There's a name for this kind of behavior. It's called legalism. This is when somebody is a stickler for making sure all of the rules, all the regulations are followed without exception. And of course, the rules apply more to others than they do yourself. You're going to give yourself some, some grace, but not nobody else. It's why Jesus had to tell people to take the log out of their own eye before they could effectively get the speck out of their brother's eye. But we don't want to deal with that. We want to deal with what, you know, the other thing. It's really kind of given the church a deserved black eye over the years because we come across as people who care far more about law than we do about love. And I want you to know that the, the truth is that it's impossible to satisfy the legalist. They will never be happy. They will always find fault. And this just, except for, you know, they won't find it themselves. But with you, they'll always find it. And we see this in Matthew 11. It's funny because you have John the Baptist's disciples and you have Jesus. And, and this is what the Pharisees did. It says they got upset with John the Baptist first. For John came neither eating nor drinking. So he, he was fasting, right? And they said he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The legalist will not be happy, period, right? There is a way that seems right to us, but the end leads to death. And we would just do well to take a good, honest look at ourselves in the mirror and recognize how merciful God has been to us, a sinner deserving of his wrath, but he's given us mercy instead. Do you really want God to judge you on how religious you are, <laughs> on how great you sacrifice? Is that, is, that the, is that the measuring stick you want him? No, you want mercy, don't you? I want mercy. And if you want mercy, be willing to offer it to others because God takes this stuff seriously. I don't know if you guys remember it in, in Isaiah, if you ever read Isaiah um, chapter one, God expresses his frustration with how his people are so focused on legalism. They're, 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 they specialize in keeping all the rules. So like fasting, check, keeping the Sabbath, check, following the rituals, check. They're doing all of these things right. But God says this about them. 
You guys don't even know me. You're a sinful nation. You're children who deal corruptly. You're rebels whose hearts are faint and whose, um, and whose heads are sick. You're estranged from me and you don't even know it. You think you're doing everything right and you couldn't be further away from me. Isn't that crazy to think about? And God was upset because they were misrepresenting him to a watching world. Even though they were doing all the right religious stuff, he doesn't want more religious Pharisees. He, he wants what he describes in verse 17 of Isaiah chapter 1. This is what he tells them as their remedy. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Everything he says there has to do with loving your neighbor. Relationships. The other stuff, it, it can be good, but, but this, they, were, they were not doing any of the stuff he really wanted them to. He wants us to have mercy love for others. You know, think about it. Did Jesus, everyone will know that you're my disciples by the way you keep the rules and regulations. It's not what he said. Everyone will know you're my disciples by the way you love. And so, the, so the better question in all of this isn't why aren't Jesus's disciples fasting, but rather why aren't the rest of you celebrating? Why aren't you in feast mode right now? This is what should be happening. You're in the presence of the promised Messiah you know, tuck your bib into your shirt, you know, and, and, and start celebrating, start feasting. And I think this is one of the reasons um, that I, I'm just going to have a moment of honesty here where I say, uh, this is probably one of the reasons I have a hard time with fasting, not just the fact that I love food, because I do that. But it's hard to fast when you have Jesus. It, it, you know, it's like when you go to a Good Friday service and you pretend to be sad. It's like, I, I know what happens. I've, I, I've already heard the story. I mean, I've, I've got this part, so I don't need to pretend to be sad. And that's how I feel about fasting. Something new is happening. Nothing's ever going to be the same again. I have Christ. So I'm, in, I'm just constantly in my mind, feast mode makes sense to me. That has nothing to do with food, by the way. It's, it's like when Jesus went to the well. Remember when he was with a Samaritan woman and, and, they, and his disciples came back because they were, you know, hey, we got you some food. He was like, I've been feasting the whole time you've been gone. They're like, did you have something to eat? Did you have a power bar like tucked away that we didn't know about? No, he's been enjoying time with his father. He's been doing the work of the father. He's been in that kind of a mode. Okay, second illustration Jesus gives is the new patch sewn into the old garment. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and the worst tear is made. So what's Jesus trying to tell them here? Uh, they were trusting in their own self-righteousness and their ability to do the good works of the law. And Jesus is telling them that that's exactly the same as relying on an old garment that just needs a good patch job, right? And, and this is, they, they thought they were doing a pretty good job, um, only needed a little help from Jesus, and I think that's the way most people think. It's like, okay, this robe I put together is pretty, it's pretty good. Um, it, sure, it has a little bit of, you know, a little, needs a little help. What, it, what it's lacking, though, Jesus can just kind of add into and, and patch up, and it'll be fine the way it is. And Jesus is letting them know that, no, it's far worse than you think. You know, the Bible talks about how our best works are like filthy rags, but we're thinking, this is pretty good, isn't it? And it's like, no, no, it's not good. Your garment's not in need of a little help. It's, it's a new patch job isn't going to cut it. You need a new garment. Yours is gross. But, we're, but we like the old garment. You know what I mean? It's comfy. It's familiar. When I was a little boy, I had a blue blanket. I loved this blue blanket. Um, I had it far too long, 
but my mom let me keep it because it gave me comfort. It had a little silk edge on it, and I used to just rub that little silk edge. It was fantastic. Um, but but I'd, I'd held on to it much longer than I should have because, you know, it, it brought me comfort, even though it probably shouldn't have in the, in the condition it was in. So one night, my mother, when I was sleeping, snuck into my room. She'd had enough. I think I was 15 at this time. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was, really, I was quite little. I don't remember a, a lot of it, but I remember she snuck in my room and I woke up that morning and the blanket's gone. And so I reasoned that burglars must have come in and found the most valuable thing in the house and took it. And she said, that's probably what happened. So my mom's a liar. <laughs> I remember coming to that epiphany later in life thinking, wait a minute. Pray for her. The point is that I was ignoring the reality of the situation. The, the, this, the blanket should not have brought me any comfort at the, because of the condition it was in. It was foul. There was nothing redeemable about it. There was nothing I could have added to it. It needed to be thrown out and replaced with something entirely new. And that's Jesus' point here. The old covenant of doing good works might, might seem right to us. It might, it might make us feel holy, um, but, but it's flawed, and it can't save us. We need to, to remember what the point of it was. The point of it was to show us we can't do it, right? I mean, do you realize that? I can give you a list of 10 basic common sense rules and say, here, go do those, and you won't be able to do them. We can't. So it, it's meant to show us we fall short. That's the whole point. And, and the, 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 the problem with trying to attain righteousness or holiness through law is it leads to one of two things. It will lead to pride, or it, it'll lead to despair. Pride because you think you've done it. You know, you're like, check it out. I've done it. I kept all the rules. Or, that's not my story. Despair, that's my story. I can't do it. And so I'm just, I'm crushed. One of those two things is going to happen because the bottom line is I know I can't pray enough. I can't fast enough. I can't give enough. I can't satisfy God's standard. I need another way. And this is where Jesus comes in. This is the beauty of the gospel. He says, I know you can't do this. You can't satisfy any of these things but I can, and I'm willing to do it for you. I'm willing to give you my righteousness by faith. You know, it's funny how we, we, holiness by works sounds right to me. I can do this. No, holiness by faith is where Jesus just hands us his, and, and there's a huge difference, free of charge. So Jesus isn't offering to help us, like, complete a, a pretty good bridge that we've built to God. He's offering to become that bridge. We, we think of it that way, like, okay, I've, I've kind of made a pretty good stride here. I'm almost there. If you could just complete this little section for me, I'll be there. No, your bridge stinks. <laughs> it's like it needs to be condemned. It's not going to pass code. Nobody should walk on that thing. It's bad. So this means we need to let go of the old blanket of law keeping and good works, no matter how much the comfort they give us, no matter how much we think they might help us. It's time to say goodbye, throw out the old, and embrace the new, and accept the fact that we don't just need a good patch job. We need brand new robes of righteousness, and Jesus is willing to cleanse us and give us those robes of righteousness. So the third illustration is the wine being poured into the old wineskins. In verse 17, it says, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. So he uses a different illustration to kind of drive home the same point. Old wineskins would have become hard and brittle. If you put new wine into it, when the fermentation process started up, it would have burst them. You'd lose everything. That's the idea. Jesus is offering us something new, something different. New wine, which is really the good news of the gospel of grace, as opposed to the 
you know, the system of works. The, the thing is, though, that it's not compatible with the old covenant. We want, to, we want to try to take what he's doing and then add it over here to this thing. Okay? We call it the Jesus plus program. Okay, Jesus, yep, I'll take you plus. I'll start to do all these things. This is one of the problems I have with, sorry if I'm stepping on toes, the, the whole messianic church movement that goes on where it's like Christians, but they go back and they embrace all of the old stuff in the, the old Jewish system. And I don't understand it for the life of me. It's like none of those things are better than what we have now. Sure, they point to Jesus. I get that part. Like Passover points to Jesus. That's good. But to, to go back and like embrace all of the old stuff that was just a shadow, not the substance. It's like, why wouldn't you? We have the substance. Why do you want the shadow? I don't get it. But this is kind of what he's describing. There's no such thing as like new and improved Judaism. It, it's not, it's not, it's still a works-based religion at the end of the day. It doesn't work. So at some point, we need to understand that you have to choose a covenant. You have to choose a wineskin. He didn't come to pour new life into an old system. He came to do something entirely new. And this is where 2 Corinthians 5.17 comes into play. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is the, this is the reality that we live in now. Okay, a couple of just takeaways. First one is this. Jesus' coming should bring us great joy. Yes, this world is filled with sorrow. Yes, there's lots of reasons to, to focus on the, the glass being half empty, but we don't have to live that way. We, we can just, just overflow with the joy of knowing Jesus. And that, that joy that we have of who he is and what he's done for us should be spilling out of us and, and getting on the people around us, Right? The second thing is that Jesus came to make all things new. And so we need to forsake the old way, forsake all of it and walk in newness of life. So that what this means is that if you want to fast, do it to the glory of God. Enjoy it. Do it as an act of worship. You get to do that as a Christian. Fast and enjoy it. If you don't want to fast, that's okay too, right? We can, we can just live in feast mode, right? Celebrate. That's okay too. Just, just do it unto the glory of God, whatever you're doing, and you'll be just fine. Number three, know that God desires mercy more than sacrifice. We should be known for the way we love people, the way we treat people, for our kindness, for being merciful. These things will serve us much better than kind of a self-righteous adherence to the rules. Don't misunderstand me. God wants us to be holy. He, he wants us to be separate and distinct. These are important. He wants, he wants us to spur each other on to these things too. But there's a way to do that that's merciful, that's loving, that's gracious, and that's effective. And then lastly, I just want to, especially as we get ready to have communion, I want you to think about this dinner table that Jesus was at and who was there. It, it was all the outcasts, the misfits, the people that shouldn't have been there, right? Um, it just reminds me that we might be surprised at who's sitting at the table, at the end. You know, I'm going to be there. That's, that's weird right off the bat. I don't know how I made it in, but I'm going to be at that table. And, and if you're going to be there too, chances are you might fit into this group of outcasts and misfits I'm talking about. Jesus came not for the righteous, but for sinners. And, and so this, this table that we're looking forward to, a meal in the future where we sit at this table with, with Christ, this banquet that we're going to, is probably going to be made up of people that are a lot like you and I. Um, and, and, and I, I just can't help but think that if, if Jesus came for sinners, we need to make sure they're invited to the party, right? Somebody invited us, and we need to make sure we're inviting them. And, and it's just a beautiful time to remember communion as well, because this table 
does two things. It, it, it remembers what Jesus did, and it proclaims his coming at the same time. And so we get to remember that Jesus loved us so much that he was willing to go to the cross for us. So you, you couldn't live the life you were supposed to. He could. You deserve to die a death that, you know, he, didn't, he did it for you. His body was broken. His blood was shed. His body was buried. He rose from the grave. This is, uh, again, feast mode. That mean, don't take two cups or anything. Don't get crazy here. Uh, but, but, I mean, do we not have reason to celebrate because of who he is and what he's done for us? So as we have communion, remember this table is set for believers. But if you know Christ, enjoy. Enjoy this meal. Enjoy what he's done for us free of charge. Um, and, and, and let that smile that should be on your face all the time permeate out into the world for everybody to say, what's going on with you? <laughs> and, the, and the answer is, the bridegroom is here. You know, he's come, and he wants me at his table. Amen. Father, thank you so much for passages like this that remind us of your goodness to sinners. Um, Lord, we, we, just, we know we don't deserve your goodness, we don't deserve your love, and yet you've lavished us um, by giving your son. And this table represents that his body, his blood for us. So Lord, help us to celebrate now as we remember your goodness and we remember what's to come in Jesus' name. Amen.